Yeah, I think that's massive, mate. Do you think you'll go back on it? Um, probably, yeah. When, I'm not too sure, but... Well, I kind of need to because our social uh, posting schedule has been non-existent. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. You're looking at your, so, uh, just the head of Manor Digital <laughs> signing off from all digital comps. Hey guys, and welcome to the Take Flight podcast with me, Mark Whittle, a peak performance podcast where we speak with the highest achievers in their chosen fields. Whether sport, business, or lifestyle, we learn the key practices, habits, and routines that make these individuals successful so we can adopt these practices into our own routines and get better day to day. This week is Mental Health Awareness Week. If you listen to our previous episode with the brilliant Naked Professor, you'll know I'm collaborating with the incredible charity Calm this week. And in supporting Calm, we are dropping three episodes of the podcast and running an event tomorrow, which is Thursday the 16th of May. To give you guys a little bit more detail about Calm, the Campaign Against Living Miserably charity is a leading movement against suicide. Suicide is the number one killer of men under the age of 45 in the UK. Calm provides a free and anonymous helpline and web chat that are open every single day between 5pm and midnight and they do this to raise awareness and try and reduce this number as much as possible. It's insane it's the biggest killer of men under 45 in the UK. They run amazing campaigns and activations through cultural touch points like music, sport, comedy and fashion and you can find out more about Calm at calmzone.net and of course if you are struggling in any way whatsoever you can use their incredible services or if you know anyone who's struggling you can direct them to the right place i'm so so proud to have been able to done this it's easily one of the highlights of starting take flight and the legends who introduced me to calm in the first place are on today's podcast so the guests for episode 36 of the take flight podcast are charlie watts and chris bohr both charlie and chris are ex-professional fighters turned entrepreneurs chris an ex-boxer and charlie an ex-mma fighter both retired from their careers and turned to entrepreneurship, having built several businesses individually and been on a few ventures themselves, they finally decided to team up, co-founding the incredible group of gyms, Manor in London. Manor is a coach-led gym, it is standing up against all conventional gyms, it's doing amazing things. Being coach-led means that they put their coaches at the forefront of everything they do. They have the best facilities, the best training. And I can speak from experience, which I mentioned briefly on the episode. I trained in the gym with Chris, actually, and it was unbelievable. The atmosphere is amazing. The facilities, as I've said, are amazing. There are extremely high achievers there as well. So it's great to be training around people like that. But the most important thing is it's so, so friendly. For a fighting gym, it's really friendly and welcoming. And I'll 100% be training there again. The guys also do amazing things for mental health. I've been wanting to have them on the podcast for a long time and we saved it for Mental Health Awareness Week because they do great stuff in collaboration with Calm. They run an incredible campaign called Strong Not Silent, which we talk all about in this episode. We talk about building businesses, building relationships and the importance of that and coping with mental health. Both the guys were so open about their own struggles with mental health and I'm really thankful for that as they shared ways they manage the symptoms from using exercise to help or seeking professional help as well. I love this chat so much, I'm sure you will too. You can learn all about the Manor Boys at My Manor London on socials and more importantly get down to one of their four sites across the capital 
to meet them in person and have a proper workout. The guys will also be at the Take Flight Live event tomorrow night. So again, that's May the 16th. You can get all details on my website at flight.co.uk, F-L-1-G-H-T. Chris himself will be sitting on the panel where we start to discuss some of the key topics in mental health and debate those. He'll be sat alongside the amazing British boxer Isaac Chamberlain and the brilliant founder of Dark Horses Sports Marketing Agency, Simon Dent. So as mentioned, tickets are still available. We have nine tickets left. There was 12 last night. I'm doing this first thing Tuesday morning. There were three sold first thing this morning. So there's nine left now. All the money, of course, is going to the great charity Calm. And if you come down, it will be amazing to meet you and a great opportunity to connect with some like-minded individuals. That's enough from me. Please enjoy this chat with the absolute legends, founder of Manor Gyms and all-round top guys, Chris Bohr and Charlie Watts. Thanks for listening. Chris, Charlie, welcome to the Take Flight Podcast. Thank you very much, man. Thank you very much for having us. Always, thanks for coming along. So tell me about your hero complex. What happened on the way here? <laughs> <laughs> Chris, do you want to lead? Uh, yeah, we basically caused a serious, I think probably a serious Delayed delay on the central line. <laughs> we were two stops away from here. We're in a, we're in a, in a, in a studio in, in White City and yeah, we were at Holland Park and we just saw that someone had left a bag unattended and it was like a pink ladies day bag. Um, and I was like, I, I just, wasn't prepared to risk it. Chris was like, ready to open it up and see what was in there. I was like, just leave it, just leave it. I thought it was probably so. nothing, and then we can relax. But then uh, Charlie, who's you know, does the right thing, safety conscious, and that. So we just uh, jogged down the platform, told the driver, who promptly just like turned off the train. Yeah, literally, you could hear the train just go like. <laughs> right, it wasn't so we knew it weren't going. Anywhere. Who did you actually tell Uber. the people on the platform? We no, we told the driver. We were only four carriages oh. away from the front. So we literally jogged to the front of the train, waved at the driver, he opened the door, and we told him that there was a bag unattended and he, uh, he was like, thanks for that. And then I just, we both got the feeling, yeah, this train's not going <laughs> for a while. <laughs> for a while. <laughs> so, yeah, guys, if, if you, uh, if, yeah, if at about 11.15am on on, uh, on Friday morning you suffered, we apologise for that. That was us. I uh, love it. Protect and serve. Yeah. Um, all right, boys, for the people who are listening, it's worth just saying who you are and what you do a, because people want to know who you are, but also so people can recognise your voices through the episode. Cool. Um, so my name's Chris Bohr. I'm a co-founder of Manor, and I work with Charlie. My name's Charlie Watts. I'm a co-founder of Manor, and I work with Chris Bohr. <laughs> 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 All right, so I think the best place to start is if you tell us a little bit about Manor, what you guys are doing today, you know, the sites that you are, the sort of work you're doing, and the roles each of you have within the business, that'd be great. Well, this is a bit of a, it's a, a question that we quite don't know the answer <laughs> to yet in terms of roles within the business. It's always okay. developing. It's been quite a crazy journey the past sort of 14 months working together. So I think a bit of background about us and how our relationship started is probably a good bit of context going into the convers- well, the question. Yeah. But I have known Chris for maybe eight to ten years. Yeah. So when we were both sort of doing our pro fighter thing um <laughs> we came into contact in a gym that we used to train at chris was starting his boxing career i was uh into my mma career and a coach at the gym um which gym was this this was the mma clinic in angel okay so yeah that's where we first sort of came into contact and we stayed friends since even though i quite soon after that interaction left the gym to go and train somewhere else and then sort of chris well 
I formed a company which pre-existed Manor. Chris also set up a couple of companies. Um, we tried to work with each other probably mm. about three to four years ago. Yeah, uh, it didn't quite work out. And then <laughs> it was nothing personal. It just, <laughs> just, it just didn't, didn't work. Make sense. It wasn't right at the time. And then yeah, Manor was formed about fourteen months ago. Yeah, and since 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 it's, since formation, it's just been a crazy whirlwind of sort of spinning plates and doing anything and everything and sort of trying to fi- piece the puzzle together. Yeah. Um, and yeah, relating back to your question on roles and responsibilities, at this point it is becoming clearer. Um, Chris is the more diligent, like nothing slips through the gaps with Chris. He's very on it with operations, great with you know training people in terms of um, bringing the, the, the coaches and staff up to speed and making sure that they're doing their roles. Um, and I think me at the moment, we're sort of, I'm more back office t- type role. Um, so we just recently uh, signed on a new fitness space. Uh, we've got an ongoing relationship with the office group that I sort of manage and we have uh, a management agreement in place with that, which we'll get into a bit more detail later. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're always developing um, and I hopefully I've sort of, touched the surface and done them a bit of justice but Teed you I up. don't know mm. yeah no it's, it, it's been incredible to think we've only actually completed 14 months of trading as Manor is, um, yeah just for context how many gyms you got now uh, so there are four uh, standalone sites and then we have uh, one private site in partnership with the office group 14 months yeah so it's mad obviously like Charlie's pre-existing um, business and relationship with the office group is what has allowed that to happen at the scale that it's happened at. And we've got a really amazing relationship with them. They, as a business, are trying to do some really amazing things in terms of revolutionising the way that, that co-working happens and, and trying to change the way that people relate to their to their office and to their work. We're blessed and, and honoured that they see us as a premium brand partner to work with on all things health, fitness and wellness within their spaces. And that's a massive part of the business that will grow. And we obviously, yeah, we're... We're indebted to them in so many ways. Mm. Um, we have a great relationship with the, the co-founders of the office group. They're, they're also like a, a double act. Um, mm. And there's actually, some, I think there's some similarities between between the, the dynamic between those co-founders and, and us. Like, yeah. They've been in business for coming on 15 years, so they're a massive inspiration. But yeah, the office group aside, yes, yeah, it's, it's incredible, man. Like The brand has, has, has been incredibly well received. We set out to try and do something different we essentially were set up as a response to what we perceive to be a lack of authenticity, credibility, and just genuine, I guess, humanity in the fitness industry in London, in particular the kind of the boutique, high-end fitness industry where it's it seems at times it's more about you know how much marbles in the changing rooms and how many front-of-house people are on the massive desk to greet you than actually the quality of the training or the quality of the coaching. Um, and that was kind of the driving factor, and we just went about things a bit differently. Like We didn't invest our money in in a lot of the superficial stuff. We invested it in our team, um, bringing on the right coaches and creating an environment where coaching can thrive. So, yeah, it's, 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 been, it's been going well. Yeah. Um, and relationship with Charlie's evolving all the time as he says I'm kind of I love working with people I love working with the team I love constantly elevating our standards um, there's so much creativity in our coaching team so there's so many ideas there's so much goodwill from all those guys and girls to constantly make what we do better so just co- kind of consolidating that logisticizing it and then trying to 
keep bring, keep everybody moving forwards together um, is kind of what a lot of my energy is spent on at the moment. Mm. Amazing, mate. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the relationship you've got with the office group later as well and, you know, the sort of stuff they talk about with wellness. I know you guys are massive on that as well and we talk about that on the podcast a lot, so it'd be good to get your guys' opinions on that. But with regards to speaking about the business, the branding, the gym and everything, I can definitely agree with what you're saying and speak to that as well because I think the first time we ever met was in, was at the Endeavour Awards. Yeah. Um, mm. A friend of mine, Nath Jones, who uh, kind of almost ran that event really, invited me along and obviously Woody was there who's been on the podcast in the past and introduced me to you and funnily enough actually when I as soon as I finished recording with Woody one of the first things he says was that I should speak with you guys because obviously we had had quite an intense chat and I think yeah, he said that imagine. we should uh we should link up as well so yeah I can speak to that massively obviously Chris I come and trained with you and you put me through my paces down in uh it was in the Victoria site wasn't it? yeah how yeah. was your experience by the way that was awesome mate yeah yeah absolutely loved it like the change rooms the whole everything is awesome like the way it's laid out is i really really liked it but the training is sick as well isn't it <laughs> mate yeah. you absolutely hammered me you did like <laughs> 45 minutes I was did you do any rounds with the ball <laughs> no absolutely no. not mate <laughs> <laughs> I <was dodging> that. <laughs> um but no it was amazing and i'm loving what you guys are doing so to speak a little bit about the business then generally speaking people have obstacles and challenges that they come up against I'd love to hear an example of something you've come up against with Manor specifically, but I'd also love to hear the business venture you went on together previously that didn't work out. Mm. Should, I, should I do the past bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so as, as Charlie said, when he went off and, and went to work with the office group and, and co-created a previous fitness business, um, he was always looking to to kind of go above and beyond. And I think... I think we're not talking out of turn here when we say that the relationship with the office group, I think, has only got better since Manor was formed because of the level of ambition and the vision and the scope of what we're trying to create. And I think that um, prior to that, Charlie always had that vision and that scope, but the setup was different and there were more limitations in terms of what he could do. But he was still constantly always looking for ways to bring extra value to the, to the members and to the, to the users of that service. And at the time, once I'd retired from fighting, I'd gone to create something with um, a friend of mine who was a yoga teacher, which was a fusion fitness concept, looking to try and bridge the gap between people who do very aggressive kinds of training, like combat sports, and people who do much more passive stuff, like, uh, not passive as in, I don't mean that in a way it's not hard, I mean, like, there's a different approach when you look at stuff like Pilates or yoga. Mm -hmm. So formed something called Yoga Box, and the tagline of it was the yin and yang of workouts. So the idea and the vision behind that was not just having some people who smash themselves all day or having other people who zen out all day, but understanding that they're two sides of the same coin and designing a workout experience that gives people actual coaching for boxing, lets them express themselves quite, you know, with quite tough work, but then also uses yoga to, to properly mobilise and properly stretch down people either side of that intensity and Charlie and I talked about bringing yoga box to the facilities that he was in at the time and yeah from my experience like I was dead keen like Charlie and I have always had a great relationship and I had been checking in with him periodically once he'd left the MMA clinic because he first left the MMA clinic to go and train at another gym and then when he retired from fighting completely um, he was at you know he was at work basically like building um, the facility that he had with the office group and it was first one and then and then the second one. Um, and I'd always stayed in touch. So we wanted to make that happen. But 
for me on my part it was I was still kind of very much finding my feet with that with that business it was operating on a pop-up basis in partnership with um, two London hotels who was that uh, so it was La Suite West in um, West London okay. and uh, the Bermondsey Square Hotel in London Bridge. And were you still fighting when you were setting that up as well? Nah, so that was at the beginning of 2016. Um, I started to work on Yoga Box and I, that was that was probably my retirement coping strategy because hmm. um, I decided to, to stop boxing for a number of reasons and it did leave a massive hole in my life. So I just thought, yeah. well, I'm going um, to smash this business thing. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I was like, right, I'm going to build a business. And that's kind of what led me to go on that journey at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we were both, I think, in different ways, not ready. And, uh, you know, um, our businesses weren't mature at that time. And we're in a different position now. Timing's so important, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. amazing, man. Absolutely. And then that then evolved into the relationship that we have today, um, the business relationship. So at that time, it wasn't right. And, you know, 14 months ago, it was. And that's how Manor was formed. Amazing. Um, so it was all part of the journey and everything happens for a reason. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I believe that as well. Do you remember the moment when, or who was it who came up with the idea first? What was that conversation like? Do you want to talk about Cupid? Cupid? Who brought us together? Who brought us together? We found ourselves. <laughs> cool. he's got, he's, in a minute, his face is going to drop and he's going to go, Chris, don't say that. But, um, <laughs> in summer 2017, we both found ourselves in the same place. Okay. So we'd kind of gone full circle like, Charlie was doing a bit of training, a bit of coaching at a certain studio in North London. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and I was also doing a bit of coaching and a bit of training at the same studio in North London. Yeah. And we were both kind of like searching for the next step. Um, at that point, for me, I had my personal training and kind of corporate fitness business called First Principles Training. I had Yoga Box, which had kind of found a bit of a rhythm and I'd actually licensed it to another facility at that time mm. and yeah I was looking for what was next and Charlie was at um, the same place and he was probably going through something similar and that is when we kind of reconnected on the sort of because um, you know you're friends but when you're when you're in your own little business journey you just got your head down and yeah. you know your business is your business you know you, you'll give people the broad lines but until you come to a point where you are not sure about that anymore you know you've got to kind of prioritise that and keep that to yourself to a certain degree. But I think we were both at a point where we were like starting to look up, you know, stick our heads above the parapet, have a look around and look at the scenery and try and figure out the next steps. And so, yeah. Uh, there was Keith it then. <laughs> he who may not be named. He who may not be named. Um, nah, he's, um, he's, uh, he's another gym owner and like wish him all the best on his journey. Um, I was going to work with him at one point and it just turned out it wasn't going to be the right move. Um, and there, there was a bit of a, there was a bit of an awkwardness when that came to an end, but I found Charlie at the other end of it, so Absolutely. it was all worth it. Right, there you go, back to, round to everything. Yeah. He, he brought us together, and at the time, you know, I knew that Victoria and Vauxhall uh, were in the pipeline, and my pre-existing business was built on good relationships and people that I knew, so it was essentially all kept within the family. And mm. only now it's getting to the point where we're branching out and actually have a proper, well, semi-sort of, recruitment strategy mm. uh, whereas before it was just like he's a good guy I've known him for X amount of years yeah. bring him in let's see what he's got and now we're just starting to build a proper inf uh, operation proper infrastructure and have proper uh, roles and responsibilities delegated to people so yeah. we're getting there after you know four and a half years <laughs> in but operation was, but what's amazing is like obviously as kind of 
business owners with like a bit of vision and like trying to grow things, you you look at all the imperfections. I've got a mind like that. All I see is problems everywhere I look. Mm-hmm. I see everything that we need to fix. But like that way of operating that, that we've inherited from from Charlie and the previous business and continues to run at the heart of of everything that we do at Manor is responsible for I think why the fourteen months that we've had have gone the way they've gone because there are multiple people deep involved like involved in our business like doing things that they're not actually you know necessarily being paid for or it's not actually strictly speaking their responsibility but so many people are going above and beyond because they've been treated in that way because they've been trusted and given an opportunity they've not been asked to come to an interview and sell themselves in a a 25 minute slot answering a bunch of bullshit questions that don't actually tell you anything about them so now we've got that and that's what's amazing once I think you've got that critical mass once you've got enough people who are like that and who've been treated that way and who think that way and feel that way about the business then you keep attracting people like that yeah. and you don't end up picking up dead weight mm. realising these people aren't actually serious they're just in it for themselves do you know what I mean like once you actually get that community yeah. and that's thanks to to the way Charlie does business amazing it's got us where we got to at this stage but moving forwards you know we really need to run more of a streamlined operation to yeah. get us to the next stage and to support our growth trajectory over the next sort of yeah. 12 to 18 months so that's an amazing mindset yeah. though because a lot of people get stuck in a way that might have worked for them in the past and then don't change anything but there's that saying in there what got you here won't get you there so yeah you need absolutely to make change. yeah it's evolution uh, yeah, yeah yeah mate how many employees have you got now then well coaching staff yeah who deliver coaching uh group training and they basically the way that manor operates is that we we're coach-led and like, we've only come to realise that recently, but like most of the fitness industry is owner-led with a customer focus, and the coaches get told what time it is. So that means that probably you don't get the best out of your coaches because you've got customers paying the money, and then owners making sure that that money gets you know gets maintained, hmm. and whatever happens in the middle is whatever needs to happen to keep people coming through the door paying their money. Which is great, and that is that's how businesses need to work. But it doesn't necessarily mean you can grow and evolve, because you don't necessarily give your coaches the empowerment or the free reign to actually do amazing things or take risks or do cool stuff. We are coach-led, so we're very careful about who we select. You know, as you've heard, it's a lot about do we know them to be good people yeah. first and foremost? Do we do we align with their values? Do we trust them? Do we believe that they're gonna they're gonna really kind of put themselves at the heart of what we're doing? And then if the answer's yes to that, then they get an amazing deal and they get incredible support from us. Um, and in return, they do incredible things for us. So they're resident coaches. So they are manor resident coaches. They deliver group sessions and they are the people that represent probably 70% of the average manor client's experience because they're the people that you come and train with. So if you go to manor, most of the time you're going to be going for group training unless you're going for one-to-one coaching. And if you're going for group training, your coach is the face of that business. Mm. So um, those people are very involved in the way that we do things. We talk to them a lot. We consult with them a lot. They go and design a lot of cool stuff. And there's now 20 of them yeah. across, uh, well, five sites. Yeah, mm-hmm. so good, man. I'm reading something at the moment called The Happiness Advantage. Have you ever heard of it? No. I've heard about the book, but I've not. Sean Aker, someone actually was, I just recorded with the other week, recommended it, mate, so I just went and bought it straight away. But he talks about that exact example of employees, if they're happy, where he talks about the whole concept of positive psychology, like success comes after happiness, not the other way around. Like we all think that we've got to succeed and win in life and have these achievements and then the mm. happiness comes. Mm. The reality is that 
if we can be happy in ourselves, then that's when we're going to find, you know, the best version of ourselves. So I guess that's what you're saying. You're giving the coaches the freedom to be happier in their jobs and in their lives by working at Manor. Yeah, it's not even that scientific, I think. Like, <laughs> I think that we, we, we're both coaches, right? We were coaches. We were fighters and we were coaches, and now mm -hmm. we run a business. But ultimately, I think when we designed things, we were just like, no way would I put up with that. Like, would I want to would I want to work somewhere like that that treats people like this or like that? No. Well, then we're not going to create somewhere. Even if everybody else is doing it, where people are getting paid X an hour and and they're you know they're basically at the mercy of the of the owner sort of thing. Um, neither of us would have gone for a deal like that. Mm. So it's like, why would we then propagate that? Because mm. you know we've come up the ranks as coaches. When we make decisions, we think about it from a coach's perspective, because we've both been coaches for you know ten years plus. And from a business owner's perspective, yeah, and hopefully as a happy medium, yeah, um, and it's it's tricky because sometimes you got to make decisions. There are conflicts, hundred yeah. percent, you know. But you, I mean, as long as you can see that, as long as you and everyone else can see that there's genuinely two sides of the coin that are being flipped against each other, and you're trying to find the best way forwards to keep everybody involved mm -hmm. in a way which values them, which also makes business sense for the business to survive, then. Yeah, I think that that's kind of a better way of going about it. Mm. Yeah, well, it's inevitable, isn't it? There's going to be conflict in business, especially when there's a lot of stake. Like, it can be a lot of money involved. People's lives are at risk as well, like their well-being. You spoke a lot about relationships already, like whether that's with this Cupid, whoever he might be, or you're, <laughs> you know, on the other side of the coin, that great relationship that you got with the office group. So I'm keen to hear a little bit more about that relationship, the value that you put on relationships, not just within your team and your coaches, but people outside as well, and how you kind of collaborate with them. Yeah, I think, as I say, this whole business was built on good relationships and with good relationships comes uh, trust and open lines of communication and Manor wouldn't be in the position that we're in today with the favourable terms and support and belief from a company such as The Office Group without the relationship that both myself and Chris have built with both of the co-founders and, and chairman. So everything that we've done and we do moving forwards, you know, we have to think about building a good relationship first because, you know, we're, we're not in this to make a quick buck and we need to be happy with everything that we're doing in the environment we're in and creating. Uh, and for that to be evident and continue, we have to build that relationship first. Charlie and Ollie from the office group have been in incredible to us. Their belief in terms of in work it, it was kind of different because, well, the pre-existing business, it was a joint venture just to service their buildings. Mm. So it was it was sort of subsidiary to their current operation, which was sort of pin drop in the ocean, didn't really affect their bottom line. Now we're a separate entity. We stand for something. We lead with our values. Um, and they can see the difference and the ambition and drive, as Chris said. Um, and, and to just have their support and belief is, yeah, is incredible. And that's the same with everyone who's currently involved with, with Manor, including our coaching staff, and it's the way we treat them and the relationship that we have with one another as well, yeah. which is always developing and growing and, you know, we're learning about one another. Mm. Have you had conflict between the two of you? Mm. Yeah, all the time. Mm. Little micro-conflicts. Like, conflict is, is I mean, I mean, conflict's not a bad thing. Like, because conflict means p two people are being honest about how they feel about things and recognising there's differences between that and then working towards it. But I think crucially on the big things, there are almost no conflicts. Mm. And that's what's really special. When, you know, we met 
again in the summer of 2017 and started to plan what was to follow, I personally was very, I'm very kind of, I'm a fairly suspicious person. I don't have a particularly high opinion of the human race. I tend to think a lot of people <laughs> are, you know, being being completely upfront, I don't, I don't expect people to do right by me unless I've decided that they're different from the norm or unless the circumstances that we're in make it very difficult for them to do wrong by me. So I think that that's the way I've, I've always looked at the world and, that, and that's changing because what I realised when we started managing the team more carefully, given them all the support that we thought they needed, you can't operate with your team, I think, if you're coming from that kind of guarded place. It just, does, it just doesn't work. Like, you can't, you can't be trusted, you don't trust, all of that. So for me, it's been a massive personal journey and it, it actually started with the conversations I had with Charlie because I was like, okay, cool, you've got this pre-existing business which we're essentially going to sort of scale and grow and evolve together. I'm going to leave my two other businesses to work on this thing, which at the moment even though it's going to be us moving forward, it doesn't feel like us, it's you. Mm. So I was essentially in a position where I was going to have to give up my businesses to go into partnership. And my cynical mind would say, I'm just going to build his business. You know, like, why are things going to change? Like, why is it it going to be both of us at the head of the ship now? Mm. Like, who says that's going to happen? Maybe he just spots a bit of talent. He wants me involved. He's going to, you know, wax lyrical to me about how great it's going to be. I'm going to sack off all my other stuff, get involved and realise that, I'm just working for somebody again. Mm. So that was a big challenge that I had to overcome. And there was some, I mean, in order to know that I was wrong to think like that, in order to know that the relationship that Charlie was proposing to me and that we were going to move forwards with was the right kind of relationship, I had to ask a lot of difficult questions. Yeah, mate. To Charlie Charlie. Charlie and to myself. So I would say to Charlie that, this, this, you know, this deal that you're talking about, how do I know X or Y isn't going to happen? And because that isn't the perspective that Charlie was coming at it from, and a lot of, as you've heard, a lot of it's been done on an incredible amount of goodwill because Charlie himself has got an incredible amount of integrity and therefore expects a certain amount of integrity from other people and doesn't question it so much, he didn't have answers for me. He'd be like, well, you're going to kind of have to trust me on that. And I was like, that's not good enough. That's not how I make decisions. I don't make decisions without insuring against people shafting you because... That's happened, the world that you operate. Happened before. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. So, for me, that was that was a bit of a sticky period, and I think for Charlie as well, probably because I, we were friends and we did like each other and we did trust each other and we did want to work together. But when it came to the nitty gritty of actually making that move and putting the eggs in the basket, you want to make sure the basket's not going to break. <laughs> yeah. um, so that was an example of where. There is an uncomfortableness where people have to lay their cards on the table. Yeah. But I think that's the only way to move forward and the relationship's only got stronger. And I've grown a lot as a result of having to work so closely with someone because I've always been a bit of a lone wolf. Mate, that's, it's huge. I'm so glad you brought it up. I don't think you've ever really spoken about it on the podcast before. But I've been similar myself and I'm just starting to... I think it comes back to looking at yourself and asking yourself questions as well as the other person. But mm. maybe more importantly, asking yourself those questions. Like I've always been in very competitive environments. So it's hard to have trust with other people when you constantly feel like you're competing with everyone. Mm. Also, like when you see other people have success, I've struggled in the past to have genuine like, happiness for that person because I'm like so competitive. It's so within me from sport and like business and everything else. You want to be like, why can't I get that? 
but at some stage when you look at yourself and you realise we're all just on our own journey, we're on our own path, we're all just trying to do our thing and help other people, then you can be happy for each other. Mm. I think the trust is massive, mate. I'm interested to hear your opinion on that, the circumstances and speaking with, with Chris about it. Yeah, I think even now I'm sort of, we're still both struggling, well, definitely myself with the relationship and both coming from professional sort of fighting backgrounds where it's just one-on-one um, action. Yeah. You do everything yourself and you know throughout my journey of my pre-existing business even though there are other people involved everything was upstairs so I pretty much did everything and I I kind of still do operate on that basis so it means that my if certain things are happening my lines of communication are very limited because it's upstairs Um, and any any sort of tasks that I'm carrying out day to day I just get on and do them but as the team grows it's it's not sustainable and as we've now I've now essentially got a a co-founder and someone who's operating we're operating the ship together communication is key between us and then between our team as well Um, and that's something that I've really struggled with in terms of that mindset shift and you know getting other people up to speed to deliver the job that I once did um, as well as communicating that uh, to Chris and everything else that's going on, but yeah, it's 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 all part of the journey. It's all part of uh, evolution as a person mm-hmm. and you know as a business, and it will take us to the next stage. So yeah, how much it's exciting. you get from that, mate? It's, it's exciting. Yeah, how do you go about a mindset shift then? Because that's big. Like I suppose it starts with awareness. But what what do you actually do then? Because you can be aware of something without actually taking action on it. I think communication is key. I also, I know we're going to get into this sort of. Uh, a bit later but the shift started to happen around the strong not silent campaign Hmm. because although our sort of strap line was strong not silent i've been operating for many years as strong and silent so just just (laughs) keeping everything in and i learned a lot about myself and that was the way i break down emotion um, and things that people were communicating to me so because of my you know professional fighting career I've always been very good at being, like my mental state being okay. So, you know, if you're in a fight, if you're winning, that's great, but you could lose at any time. And if you're losing, you could win. So I've always tried to keep sort of emotionally neutral. And I think Chris has sort of noticed that a lot throughout our business relationship together. Um, I'm very, I'm very quiet, you know, I don't speak much. And I'm sort of quite emotionless in terms of reacting to things. Uh, so sometimes he has to shake me and say, Charlie, fucking talk to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, around around the Strong Not Silent campaign, definitely opening up helped me massively and it sort of came to the realisation that when, you know, someone says something that I don't agree with or, you know, that I do agree with and it makes me very happy, I still stay em- emotionally sort of neutral. If I'm sad, it will dip below, you know, momentarily and I'll try and pull myself back up. So that feeling is never communicated out outwardly um, and that's a problem because if some someone does something that's going to be detrimental to your business you need to let them know they've stepped out of line but if I'm not processing that emotion then I'm not going to outwardly communicate it um, so I've had to look inwards to then communicate the way I am outwards and then develop as a person so it's, it's a process and over the past sort of yeah six to eight months um, I can feel myself shifting and it's it's also an identity shift for me as well because the sort of story I've told myself over the last 10 years is that oh I'm the nice guy and I'm still perceived as the nice guy but as we shift into a different stage of business where you know the stakes are higher and there's a lot more risk and there's a lot more stress and there's a lot more operational detail 
people need to be pulled up if they're doing things wrong. So yeah, it's as I say, it's it's, it's all a process, and that's sort of how I've developed and where it stemmed from. Mm. Um, we've all got a dark side as well, don't we? I suppose we have to tap into it as and when we need to. Like you can be the nice guy, but there's also another side of you. I mean, when you're in the ring or when you're in the octagon or whatever, you, wherever you're fighting in the street. Yeah. <laughs> um, Never in the street. <laughs> Just to clarify, <laughs> we've had like one fight in the street. Yeah, I was in six four there. I won. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Important sure. to know people. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Fight. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, you must be tapping into like some sort of darkness within you to do that and. I don't know whether that can come through anger or emotions that you're getting in touch with then. It's interesting to hear that you put the blockers up when you're in normal life. Yeah. Would you say you're naturally more introverted then? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. And why do you think you've uh, kind of ignored different emotions? I think it's just the way I've been programmed. I mean, I don't want to get too deep into it, but it's, you know... You can if you want. I've had, I've had an amazing, amazing upbringing. My dad is the same. He's, you know, he's very introverted and... He's not really showing much affection to, to me or, you know, my mother. Um, so that's sort of growing up, that was just normal. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a process of the programming that I've had, the subconscious programming over the course of my life. Yeah. Um, and now I'm having to sort of reprogram myself, which yeah. is exciting, but it's also very daunting and can be stressful and sort of cause a bit of anxiety. And once you make an observation, you have an obligation to change and I'm committed to that change. And, Amazing, mate. How old are you? Uh, 29. 30 in August. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mate, that's yeah. amazing. I think it's like that typical age where so many people do it. I've been on my own journey, which is what the podcast is born out of for the last like, two, three years. And I'm 31 now. I just think that when you go through that process, it's like the brave thing to do and you get so much from it. And generally, it is going back to those stories that we've been telling ourselves for, well, our whole lives and understanding why we've been telling that story and why that narrative's been going through our minds the whole time and trying to rewire that. Yeah. Chris, what's, what about your story? Is there, is there any similarities? Do you draw anything from that as well, like with your upbringing and your family? I mean, in a lot of ways, in this particular area, Charlie and I are, are like polar opposites. Really? And I think that, has, that is what has led to both of us benefiting from each other and changing. So I've learned things about myself from being around Charlie and I've also, you know, sought to change the story that I tell myself. But my story actually is... Um, my childhood was kind of dominated by a perception of me being a bad guy. And that's basically because my father left when I was uh, two years old and my response to the change in my... And my mum was very upset and, and angry about it and I was, I was raised by her, essentially. I still had a good relationship with my father, but, you know, when you're a small child, you spend the majority of your time in, you know, in and around your, your, your key parent, and that was my mum. And I, I responded to that very badly. Um, so by the time I was four, I was demonstrating some quite like violent and disruptive behaviour to the point I was actually permanently excluded from primary school at the age of four and a half, which doesn't doesn't happen very often. You've got to do some pretty bad shit for them to say that you're a no hoper at four and a half. But um, essentially, yeah, there was there were two choices that were that were pr placed before my my family, and one was to be essentially sent to some kind of a secure educational unit for kids with problems um, and the other was to either be sort of homeschooled or to, to find alternative education because the um, the local authority basically uh, sent educational psychologists to evaluate me and came to the conclusion that the school were right to exclude me because it, they would be failing in their duty of care to all the other children if they let me in the room because 
with 30 kids in a classroom and one unpredictable kid who one minute is trying to run away from school, next minute trying to set the building on fire, next minute trying to poke someone with a stick or whatever, do you know what I mean? Like, they were like, we can't handle him. So, and it was my mum, and my mum was a single parent and homeschooling me was not an option. So she essentially, um, she had to, she, she was just going from childminders to anyone who would take me while she was sort of holding down her job. And then eventually she, um, she had a recommendation from an incredible woman who I'm still friends with to this day, who I reconnected with a few years ago after about 25 years of no contact, who was my nursery teacher. And uh, she was, yeah, I don't know if, why, but I was good as gold around that woman. And she made a recommendation to a school and said, you know, you can take this kid. But it was a private uh, fee-paying school. And my mum struggled to afford it, but um, as far as she was concerned, there was absolutely no way that I was going to be sent to some kind of secure lockdown unit. And to be fair, if I had gone there, I probably wouldn't be here now. But, yeah, that was kind of the narrative. And, I, and, I, and I, when I went to that school, which is shut down now, but... It was a small school in Wandsworth that actually was like, okay, he's actually quite bright. He's actually got a lot of creative energy and that's part of the reason why he's kind of struggling in, in a different environment. So I actually did very well there, but I still had I still had behavioural problems. I was still naughty all the time. Spent most of my lunch breaks facing a wall, in detention most of the time, but nothing, just for being lippy, basically, nothing like what I was doing when I was naughty, when I was younger. So that narrative kind of followed me through my childhood. And so I think when you're... When you're labelled or you label yourself like that at a young age, you div you evolve in a very different way. So I was never at risk of telling myself I was the good guy because everybody around me was treating me like I was the bad guy. So that, as a result of that, I think it means you you become more comfortable with hostility, you become more comfortable with solitude, you become more comfortable with um, being judged by other people, finding your own way. So you know you might not have as much fun when you're a kid. But when you get to sort of, when I got to sort of 25 and I quit my career to go and fight, um, a lot of my friends came out and were like, oh my God, man, like, it's a massive decision, are you sure? And when I said I was, they then expressed massive admiration for it and a feeling that they were trapped, that they themselves had been living a life since they were sort of whatever, 17, popular kid, good at sport, had a girlfriend, went uni, done the thing that everyone else was doing that was gonna get them a job, got the job, got a girl, got money, got a flat, got a car, put a ring on it. And then they're 27 and they're like, fuck, I, I don't know if I want any of this anymore. I don't know if I chose any of this. I think I was just in the slipstream because nothing was wrong. So I think when nothing's wrong, you don't know how much you're choosing things. And I think when you're, when things are clearly wrong from a young age and you're getting stick for it, no one's gonna back you unless you start to back yourself. And I don't mean back yourself in a positive way. It might be that you just become a hostile little prick that's like, looks after themselves. And that was me probably for a period of my adolescence. But I think unpackaging that, much like Charlie's unpackaging his, the way he processes emotion, I think unpackaging my hostility to the world and my sort of self-sufficient, don't trust people um, programming, it then gives you, you know, ingredients to you know, make make some big decisions, take some big risks, you know, reach for the stars and don't care if people tell you that it's unrealistic. Mm. So that's probably the positive side of it. Amazing, mate. No, I appreciate you both sharing that, man. That's amazing. A lot of that spoke to me as well. We heard about the, um, like the Goldilocks rule. Of like, no. if there's, um, you know, she goes in, if, 
she has the porridge if one's too cold one's too hot one's just right we go through life like it's so important to feel pain like I've, I've found that myself now like when you live comfortably like you were saying there when you're in a place where everything's all right you can go on cruise control and you just float through life and you know the the, the term that people use now is like sleepers when you're just going through that path that society mm. lays out for you but that right amount of pain is what allowed you to grow challenge yourself overcome things and become a better person and and be like your true self do you think that with some of the stuff that you did it was more of a cry for attention or what was going through your head when you were like acting out what was what was it for what I mean I can't actually remember to be honest the majority of it I remember I remember a couple of the the, the acts of violence that I got that I got done for just because people kept talking about them I don't actually remember my motivations at the time the thing about when the state gets involved in your mental health when you're four is that it's all documented mm. So I've actually been able to read reports of educational psychologists who've come to my home when I was three or four and conducted home observations, and I've read what the school wrote, and I've read... Because they, you know, they basically were being threatened to... With court action, they had to prove that they'd made the right decision to exclude me because the state has a statutory obligation to provide education up until the age of 16. Um, and taking such drastic action as removing a four-year-old from mainstream schooling wasn't going to go without a bit of a fight. So, you know, they had to do all this documentation. So one of the themes that comes out was um, this idea that I always had enemies. So when they asked me about why I did what I did, or, you know, I mean, all little boys like to play with, like, toy guns and sticks and swords and whatever. And me, just the same, but they, they went into that a lot and they started being like, yeah, this is a sign that the guy's disturbed or whatnot. So when they started asking me questions... The theme, the key word that kept coming out was enemies, enemies, enemies. So I don't think that I was trying to cry for attention. I think that I felt profoundly vulnerable and insecure due to the breakdown of my family, um, due to the feelings that my mum was feeling that no doubt I was picking up on. Mm. And I don't feel safe anymore. So my way of responding to not feeling safe was to go to war. Yeah. So... And that, to this day now, that's me. Like, um, I was made an ambassador for um, an incredible clothing company called Lululemon who um, focus on a lot of personal development. And through this ambassador programme, I've been through a lot of personal development in the last couple of years. And one of the key themes that emerged when they got you to try and visualise your personality, your vision, yourself, your, your core, is I was, I've got this warrior mentality. So I will go to war, even if at, the, at my most vulnerable point, I'll go to war. I won't give up or seek to like placate people or make a deal, and that's probably what that was about. Yeah. Um, and other kids, you know, I think everyone has their own temperament. Other kids would respond differently for whatever reason. I chose to respond with violence. It's that fight or flight, isn't it? You're going to do one or the other, and people who like yourself can fight up against it. I mean, there's there's arguments for both sides, but it's clear how you've ended up going down the line of like fighting and, and your boxing and stuff. It'd be good to know from you, Charlie, as well, like what kind of led you there when you're kind of your story's slightly different in the sense that you're kind of more shutting off emotion. What do you think led you into fighting and getting into that world? And, and then it'd be good to hear like the developments from both of you on that and how you became, you know, high up in both sports. I got into fighting just by chance. Really? <laughs> I've always been into competitive sports, and I feel that that, is, that was probably my expression. That was the way I expressed myself. Yeah. Any sport that I've ever done, I've always you know, played to a really high level. What else did you play? Uh, I was a competitive runner, yeah. uh, so I ran for my county 
Um, I played semi-professional football. Who did you play for? Uh, Hendon. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Played county tennis. Nice. Um, and then pursued a fighting career. Um, so, yeah, I think that any anything that I've applied myself to, I've just got my head down and worked really hard. And as I say, you know, I feel that sport is the way I express myself, and that's why I've been able to excel so much. I mean, my professional fighting career, I finished off fighting for the largest promotion in Europe, and I, my last fight was in the Liverpool Echo Arena. Wow. Um, I, and I'm the complete opposite to, to Chris um, in terms of I am very introverted, I'm very quiet, I'm very emotionless. And that's the sort of same way that I fought, but I suppose I sort of got into the mode of, and the mindset of when you're in the ring, that's the, that's where you express yourself, and it's it's in that environment, it's it's kill or be killed. And I still approached it with a sort of very sort of blasé, emotionless attitude. And how how have I developed from there? More so now, as as sort of work gets busier, we're we're not able to train as much as we are. So mm. I've had to express myself uh, in different ways. And unfortunately for me, <laughs> that means communicating. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's interesting I'm, you say like you said emotionless a few times, almost like it's a negative thing. But I don't know if you agree with this, Chris, or not. But I, I think it's like there's an energy you pick up from people, obviously, and yours is like a really warm, nice, friendly energy. It's not like emotionless. Like I'm not getting cold. From it's you. not cold. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way that Charlie's cold. No, like Charlie's a guy that everybody wishes they could spend more time with. Yeah. So like, he's got like that magnetic appeal, and I think. Conversely, like the guy's always got a smile on his face. Like even you know he's got got a young son. You know he's like juggling work, um, fatherhoods. You know all number of other things. And I think that ability to just maintain like that that consistent outward persona, which is not actually a put on. It's just like his way of functioning. He's just constantly positive. So that's an amazing thing. So people um, will never know quite how difficult Charlie's day is or isn't because because he will never be rude to someone, he will not snap at someone, he will not fuck someone off because he can't be asked, And that's massively positive and I think that probably comes from a place of that kind of over-regulation of emotion um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Mm. Yeah, and no, I think it's amazing, mate. So obviously both stories there are, are really interesting and I'm sure people are going to resonate with them a lot. It'd be good to hear a little bit more about how the Calm collab came about and what that campaign was all about. Obviously, you guys introduced me to Calm and how it all happened, so I really, really appreciate that. We're doing three podcasts with them in the event that uh, you guys are going to be hopefully more involved in. And Chris, obviously, you're sitting on the panel now already. So, yeah, it'd be really good to hear more about the Strong Not Silent campaign and, and why you, you kind of did it. So the way it formed um, was around the time of my 29th birthday. Um, I always like to mark my birthday with, like, a real epic um, workout <laughs> All right. and, and last year but um, by epic you should read like insane stupid yeah, like ridiculous limitless like pushing but to the limits people are doing a lot worse than me but like, <laughs> last year I was like how can I challenge myself both physically and mentally do something that I've never done before on your actual birthday push me to my limits yeah so yeah. I was like probably a run why don't I do 29 kilometres yeah. so the day before I decided to do this run on my birthday um, I've never ran more than about 10 or 12 kilometres before and I hadn't been training for it. So over the course of, I think it was a Sunday before my birthday, it was on the Monday, this idea started de developing. I put a little shout out on social and I was like, listen, I'm going to do this run tomorrow, which charity should I do it for? 
So people were pinging over yeah. loads of various charities and Calm was just one that resonated. Um, so I decided to raise 250 quid for my birthday run the next day. I think within two or three hours I hit my target and then by the time I'd finished my run, so I kicked off at 4.30 a.m., by the time I finished my run, I'd raised sort of in excess of a thousand pounds in like 24 hours wow. and completed this 29 kilometer run. And um, then the sort of relationship formed with Calm. And yeah, this sort of whole campaign was, well, I'll let Chris sort of talk about that because he was the creative mastermind behind yeah. the Strong Not Silent campaign, but it had a multi-pronged approach, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, no, it did all kick off with, with that kind of, that act that Charlie undertook. Um, yeah, Calm is campaign against living miserably and they're specifically focused on the issue of male suicide. With the you may you may have those listening may have heard of this campaign, like the eighty four campaign, which was a something they did as a as a massive awareness raiser where they put dummies of eighty four men at the top of a, a very high building in London. Yeah, and um and then people just started noticing it and, and it and from a distance it looked like there were a bunch of men standing at the you know, mm. on the edge about to jump. And when people started asking questions about it, it led to calm having a massive impact with this which is quite worrying statistic that eighty four men take their lives every week in the UK. So that and it is basically like I think is it the number one or the second highest killer of men? I think it's um, the single biggest killer in men under forty five. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so within a certain age bracket, so it, it kills yeah. more than cancer, kills more than heart disease, kills more than road traffic accidents. And no, I, I have never heard of that before I came into contact with Calm. So yeah, that was a conversation that started and essentially what we wanted to do is the response that Charlie received um, for his actions kind of let us know that we'd touched a nerve or that it had resonated. And I think the conclusion that we came to, which you know is hard to prove correct or incorrect, but what we realised was that as ex-athletes, fighters, boxers, MMA fighters, people think you're, you're a hard man. Um, you're a tough alpha dude and what we realised is that a lot of the people and I think this is already changing in the space of it's been less than a year since we started the campaign and I already think there's change but there was a perception for, on, our, on our behalf that a lot of the people who were talking about mental health specifically for men were not perceived as the tough alpha rock solid dudes who handle their shit well there were a few you know, high profile rugby players who spoken about it but for me anyway, that was all I had in my consciousness. Mm. And I did have the perception that a lot of the sort of um, male mental health charities or, or people speaking on it, they weren't really talking to like proper men, hard men, tough men. They were talking to like men who are like really in touch with their feelings and who want to talk about it anyway. And that was a perception that we had, which wasn't necessarily accurate. But we thought that if we had that perception, there was probably others who did have it as well. And what we realised was that if... As a different kind of man, we took a stand and said, like, I'm struggling. You perceive me to be successful. You perceive me to be strong. You perceive me to be, have all my shit together and not need any help. But actually, there's many times I do need help. I either struggle to ask for it or I do ask for it. But I'm acknowledging that I struggle with life, with, with emotion, with worries, with concerns, with issues about myself, whatever. So that was what we decided we could bring to the table not saying anything new, we're not mental health experts, but if we could mobilise our community, because we've got some fairly hardcore dudes that train with us, and we could get those guys to actually share something real, not just go, guys, you should talk about your mental health, but actually say, here's my situation. You wouldn't have guessed it, would you? It's okay to talk about your situation. 
that's kind of the, the, the road that we went down. So the first wing of the, the campaign was public events. So we partnered with Lululemon on this and they very generously um, donated and helped us organise events in their stores, which were publicly accessible, following a kind of train, eat, talk formula. So it wasn't just a panel, people turned up and as soon as they got to the store, we went and took them on like a savage little workout. Really? And then everybody sweated together with the panel speakers and the audience all together, training alongside each other. Then they got back to the store, food was there, provided. We in a very informal, relaxed environment where you've already broken bread with people, sweated with them. Mm. Then we start to talk about these issues and we lead from the front. We don't ask other people to take risks. Like we put, in this case, it was always one of our coaches or sometimes two of our coaches and an outside speaker up on the panel with someone facilitating, asking them difficult questions and getting them to, sh to share things which you know are difficult. And the response we had from the audiences at those places were, was phenomenal. We've got another panel actually coming up, which will be at the Lululemon Sweat Life Festival, which is a two-day um, fitness and wellness festival at Tobacco Docks. Um, it's going to be the 22nd and 23rd of June. We're going to do a panel there. And one of the guys who's going to be on that panel is one of the people that we met for the first time one of those nights in a Lululemon store. And he was at the back and he'd done the workout and he ate the food and we'd done the panels. And then we started opening it up to questions. And right at the end of the night, we said, you know, anyone else want to share anything? Put his hand up and he said, I tried to kill myself nine months ago and this is the first time I've spoken about it publicly. And from that time, that particular individual um, has become just a, an inbuilt part of the Manor family. He started training with us started training with one of our coaches one-to-one. -one. Then he started training in the group sessions. He's gone on to compete in runs with the team because that man has got like a load of extracurricular activities. He smashed the marathon, didn't he? He smashed it's the three hours three, 30. 3.30 at Jesus marathon time. Said. His goal was like four, it was, I think it was sub four, four hours. Yeah, just sub four hours. He smashed it in 3.30. First one? Yeah, first one. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's incredible. And like stories like that, we were just like blown away by. So that was the kind of the bulk of it was these events. And yeah. we, we came into contact with over 500 people at these events. Um, they were themed. So rather than t t tell people we're gonna talk about mental health, we said we're gonna talk about themes. So we said we're gonna talk about identity, we're gonna talk about relationships, vulnerability, money, power, and success. So those were the four topics. And then we invited panelists who were seen as strong, alpha, successful men who had something to say about each of these issues. And then we basically broke them down in public and made them vulnerable and let them tell people how difficult certain things were in their lives, which then just sparked these conversations. Mm. So I think that's the number one theme from the Stronger Silent campaign. It's like, if you want men to open up and take risks, you gotta take risks. You can't just sit there as, you know, Mr. Facilitator on your panel and ask everyone else to open up and share when you've done nothing to build trust in that room. Yeah. So that was what we did, and then we had a social media campaign where yeah, people cool well. were able to... That was just kind of like, if you can't attend an event but you want to show solidarity, send us a portrait of yourself. We will brand it with the Strong Not Silent emblem, send it back to you with a, with a caption which raises awareness. And then, and then, you know, if that's all you want to do, if all you want to do is put your name and face to this campaign and share the sort of stats and explain to people what's going on, that's fine. But we invite you to share a little piece of your personal struggle. Yeah. And we had hundreds of people doing that. We did a campaign film that Tyson Fury retweeted. Yeah. Um, it went viral. We had like famous fighters, like UFC legends, like Brad Pickett, 
Darren Stewart, all kinds of amazing people started putting their name to this campaign and and that's really where we realised that this just couldn't be a one-off. Like we had to just install this into the heart of managed culture and you know, we're we're the gym company that talks about mental health. Mm. And that's it now. Like it's not just a little flash in the pan. We'll, we'll always work with Calm on an ongoing basis. We organise regularly ch- charity fight nights. We've got one coming up in a few weeks. Yeah. Proceeds for that are going to Calm. They always get invited down to the fight night. They always have a stand. Everyone who's there to watch the fights and have a few beers also sees, in the same context, you know, a little stand where you can talk about your fucking mental health. And it's not like a stigma. It's not like a problem. It's like, go get a beer and then go and sort of like check in with the calm people and see if there's anything there that's interesting yeah. and then go watch some fights. From your guys' experience, you've both been through your own challenges of mental health. How would you suggest listeners who might be going through a tough time to be more vulnerable, open up and speak about it? Because I find a lot of the time you have to get to rock bottom, you have to get to your darkest place, which is definitely what happened with me, and then you finally decide, all right, now I've got to make a change, I've got to do something to shift my circumstances and shift my mindset. But if you were giving advice to someone, what would you say is a way that they can perhaps, rather than wait until that real, real low point, what can I do to be more vulnerable? Mm. I think quite simply just opening up to your friends and family initially. Uh, getting your struggles, you know, sharing your struggle. And if you're not able to do that um, for whatever reason, then something that myself have sort of started to do uh, based off the back of the Strong Not Silent campaign was get professional help. Mm-hmm. Um, but but don't bottle it up because it's your, your bottle will burst. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, as you say, just, try, you know, prevention is better than cure. What do so, you do, Fer- like, professional-wise? Psychotherapy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When was that? Um, probably a couple of months after the campaign had started, yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Um, so I've had a few sessions. To be honest with you, now it's sort of on pause, but it's something that Chris has been doing more ongoing. But um, I'm, I'm looking to jump. I did three or four sessions. Yeah. And it, ma- yeah, it massively helped. Um, just having that hour to, to you know, talk mm. and, o- and open up to a neutral. And yeah, get you sort of get get your struggles off your chest. Yeah. That is um, big. I'm, I'm, it's a complete excuse, but. I just haven't fitted it back into my routine, but it's something that is very important that I need to implement, like, today. Yeah. So, yeah, regardless of if there may be a conscious struggle, I'm sure there'll be a subconscious struggle. And as our strapline was, is there's no help health without mental health. And it's all well and good working on your physical health, but, you know, both your mental and physical health align and they should be working in conjunction with one another. So yeah. going to a psychotherapy doesn't necessarily mean you have a problem. It could just be that you're you know, exercising your mental health. And then if a problem does arise or you know, you, you've already started to, to, to share it, and it, it definitely helps. So. Yeah, it's amazing, man. I couldn't agree more, mate. I think I've, I've done my own version of it as well. I did CBT. I did 12 sessions of it. It was unbelievable. I've said it on here before, like, I've got a, I've got my own barber, dentist, like all these things. You've got your specialty people looking after you, but people don't spend enough time working on the most important thing, which is their mind. Mm. When I, I went through 12 sessions and I was like, you know what, if I could, I'd do it every single week. I remember the first time I, I went in, I sat there and I just literally spoke for an hour nonstop. I don't even remember being asked a question. I just spoke. And then people asked me, like, oh, was, was any good? Like, was she a good therapist? I was like, I don't even know. Spoke. <laughs> I just spoke. I didn't stop speaking. <laughs> what about yeah. yours, Chris? Yeah, I think for, for, for the thing with Strong Not Silent that we became aware of is that as soon as some brand, like as a brand, it's weird, isn't it? Because we're a brand, right? Manor is like a brand, it's growing, it's got its own following, it's got its own voice, but we also put the people 
at the heart of the brand. So we like some businesses seek to build a brand that kind of relies on no one, so that you know they can basically use people interchangeably and like the brand will survive. Um, there's obviously good reasons for doing that, but we've kind of gone a different route where we put our coaches and our team forwards as like the face of our brand, the heart of our brand. And um, I think because we did that, we looked really, well, we were approachable and we were accessible. And we started getting people reach out to us on social media with some some really, you know, difficult experiences that sometimes they'd never shared before and they literally, on a DM to a business that they'd mm. never really even necessarily met anyone from, they started saying some of the stuff that they were struggling with. Yeah. And one of the big things is like that that urge to help people but but understanding that like we're not mental health professionals and in terms of like the advice that you give to people you've got to be very careful because if you tell someone to go and oh you know you know what? go and tell your mate about that thing you've got and they don't have a supportive open-minded and constructive face um like a group of of people or one face that they can go and talk to then that person then risks responding in a way which is not appropriate and then that person will decide that they don't ever want to share anything ever yeah. again so i think broader kind of conversations are more to do with like are you surrounding yourself with people who you feel you can be open and honest with are you in an environment where you feel like valued and trusted for who you are do you just go through the motions are you always just trying to keep up appearances these kinds of ideas like mates will rinse each other especially groups of men like just because you're getting rinsed by your mates doesn't mean they don't care about you but is all it ever is rinsing or can you actually have a, have a have a beer and just like do you actually check in with each other and be like how you doing man like what's what's your life saying how you feeling about you know this mad business that you're building like is it actually what you want like these kinds of conversations i'm lucky enough to have them on a regular basis of you know i've ended up building an amazing group of people around me both in and work and outside but it's not true for everybody so i think being honest with yourself about what does your social life do for you? Um, is it helping you grow as a person? I remember the first time I came into contact with this was from Charlie, but Charlie told me on one of our sort of like catch-ups back in the day, you are the sum of the five people you spend the most yeah. time with. Who are you spending your time with? Yeah. And if it's if it's bullshit, then you know it's not going to help you, is it? So I think for mental health, it's really important to do that. But when you start being vulnerable though mate it's good because you attract them people into your life anyway like we've had some deep chats over coffee yeah, as yeah. soon as you like start to do that stuff you attract those people into your lives and it helps you move forward anyway and grow and be better yeah it's like what we were saying before like you've got to take a risk man yeah. if you want to put your flag up and say I want to have honest don't always want every catch up to be a fucking psychotherapy session <laughs> with your mate I'm not saying that but like if you want to say look I'm up for I'm up for actually seeing what's going on with you and and I kind of would expect that in return from you. Like, mm -hmm. if we're both interested in each other and we value each other, let's have them conversations. You've got to actually put your flag in, in the sand and say, this is what I stand for, which means at some point saying it or yeah. having that conversation or asking those questions. Yeah. And if you get laughed off the stage, then maybe you're not talking to the right people. So you Mate, do have to take a risk. It's interesting. Like I know I'm asking you the question, but I haven't really thought about it myself. But it's interesting that one of my really close mates, one of my best mates, we've kind of been on this journey at the same time. So you can almost tell when you pick the phone up to each other, it's like, ah, oh, you do, mate, you're right. And it's kind of that weight thing to be like, nah, do you know what, it's been a bit of a rough week, and then you kind of know. Mm. Or, or they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm sweet, and you're like, okay, it's going to be one of them conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, there is, a, there is, yeah, it's, it's, I don't really know how to do it, but, you know, I talk like I've got all this great social activity going on, I basically live at work, so <laughs> uh, I've got a girlfriend who's 
a great reason to keep some fun in my life and she's full of energy and, you know, lively spirit. But, you know, it's my work husband sitting next to me right here. <laughs> yeah. you know I mean? so, um, so, yeah, I think when you, if you do... You're wearing the trousers today. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think if, um, yeah, if, if, you, if, if you work really hard and you're really involved in, you know, your, your professional development or whatever personal goal you're on, when you do spend time talking to people, it needs to add value to your life, man. Yeah. Um, can't just be, and you know, blow off some steam and have fun and do all the rest of it. And you need to have that too. Maybe I don't have enough of that. But um, but yeah, I think that there's a process to go through. And then if we can get men to start looking at each other like that and get men to start valuing that aspect of their relationships, you're going to have less guys who feel like they've got no one to talk to. Mm. And like, if you do feel you've got no one to talk to because you've got trapped in that kind of a lifestyle, yeah, go and get some professional help. Um, or if you can't swallow that because you don't think you've got a problem and you don't want to accept that or you don't want to think in those terms, do other things which you don't feel you're going to judge yourself for quite as much. Mm. We shouldn't be judging ourselves for going to see a therapist. We shouldn't because it doesn't mean you've got a problem. It just means you're trying to optimise another area of your life. I see a therapist every week and I've done for about... Again, off the back of the Strong and Silent campaign for probably about five months. Okay. And I just make myself do it. And honestly, sometimes it fucks up my day. I'm in the flow. I've got to leave. I've got to go somewhere. I've got to come back. But you know what? Sometimes you have them sessions where you don't necessarily break new ground, where you're just sort of like, you're just you're talking about work most of the time because that's 90% of my life. But then other times you do, you know? And, it, and, it, and, it's, a, and it's, a, it's an appointment to check in with yourself because I don't know about anyone else, but I can race through my day and not and not think once about how I'm feeling. Yeah. I'm just like getting shit done, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, whichever way people want to take it, I think people just need to change the way they look at what that means. Yeah. Um, amazing message, man, and you're having a big impact both of you, so it's amazing what you're doing. And I'm indebted to you for introing me to Calm as well, so hopefully I can have even a small part of the impact that you guys are having as well. They're an amazing organisation, and the way they work with people as well is special, because yeah. they, they don't come in and be like, you know, this is how we operate, are you in or you out? They, they basically work with you, so that's why they've had an amazing breadth of partners. So they might work with you know, musicians or celebrities or gyms or yeah. artists, or and they always put it on your terms. So it's mm. like, what do you think you can bring to this debate and how do you think you can, doing what you do, what you have credibility for, um, speak to, to the work that Calm does? And I think that that's why we get on so well. Yeah, no, mate, I couldn't agree more. Credit to them, they're, they're amazing, aren't they, with the way they work with people? Mm. Alright, guys. So you spoke about how you can be vulnerable and how we can start to like more open up a little bit more and maybe manage those symptoms of mental health, whether it's anxiety, depression, whatever it might be. Speaking to someone like a professional is a good example. Another one that I find really beneficial is exercise. Mm. You guys have obviously been professional fighters, so I'd love to hear sort of briefly what it was like being a, a, a fighter, the kind of things you went through when you were fighting one on one with somebody else, whether that was physically or mentally. Yeah, I mean. As I say, I've always done competitive sports. The only reason I became a professional fighter is because I really enjoyed the mental and physical challenge of MMA, and then the only way to compete was to fight. And yeah, I just, in terms of being a fighter or being an athlete, for me, you know, you get to train twice, three times a day, you get to hang out with your mates. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, it's an incredible journey. And, f and at the time, it suited me so much I had a personal training career I was living the dream um, how it sort of developed me as a person most of the 
strengths and attributes in my life that I pride myself on now I've developed through professional fighting so hard work discipline uh, sacrifice you have to be very selfish as a fighter with everything you do because everything is geared towards um, your career and you know transitioning into to business is exactly the same thing mm. one thing that I'd like to say I'm quite disciplined on still is making sure that I I train each day and just as you were talking about your weekly therapy um, uh, you know we do hold each other accountable in a lot of respects I'd like to take this podcast as oh, a, a stand go. what is it <laughs> I think that I think that off the back of this I really need to get into some regular therapy and I'd like you to hold me accountable to that should we shake on it and uh, I'd also like to hold you accountable for more Exercise. Train more, yeah. I need to so, train more quickly. Right, I think, uh, I think it'll be good, good for us both, man. All right, we yeah. shook on that. Uh, <laughs> I've got to train every day, and he's got to go therapy every week. Yeah, oh, nice. You're going to train every day, though? Not necessarily every day, but... To be yeah. honest, movement movement every day is crucial. Yeah. And like that's something that I was I was good at the start of the year. I was I was doing three or four of our group sessions. Because I love it, man. Like uh, It's an amazing... It also teaches you a lot about your business, because it just makes you realise how... I don't mean to sound like up our own asses, but like it's good, man. The training is good. The community is good. The, yeah. the coaches are good. Yeah, vouch for it. Do you get me? The vibe <laughs> is good. good. So it's like it's cool to do that, man. Like you yeah. can jump into, you know, I might jump into a session at any one of four sites, and enjoy it and get a workout and learn more about my business and build a great rapport with our community. Yeah. Um, so I was doing it more at the start of the year, and then we're just going through, as you've heard, like a major evolution at the moment in terms of like you know, back-end stuff, operational stuff, which has kind of, like, sw- swallowed me up a little bit. I'm not I'm not um, prioritising as much as I should do so. But, yeah, if I train hard, like, get a, a good sweat on three, four times a week, yeah, I'm happy. Nice. And then if I can do some movement the other days, like, just a little 10-minute, 15-minute yoga flow in the morning just to sort of... Because I'm starting to creak. Um, <laughs> you know, that helps as well. Yeah, mate, amazing. What about you, Charlie? What's your exercise regime at the minute? Well, at the moment, I've just started a new programme in anticipation for my 30th birthday. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I've got, th- I've, got, yeah, I've got three set uh, days a week and then, yeah, movement is part of my daily routine. Anyway, if, if I don't train, I just, I can't function yeah. optimally. So, What's yeah. your favourite exercise today? Uh, I do like to have a beast in, yeah. a good fresh in a couple of times a week. Um, but yeah, a combination between sort of lifting weights and doing some conditioning. So. Yeah. Yeah, we went through a stage where we were doing weekly boxing together and sparring, which was really good for both getting out our frustrations. And <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we haven't done it in a while. And I probably, for the record, Charlie's probably about, 20 kilos, he's about 20 kilos heavier than me. So, so it was, uh, those were uh, educational sessions. But yeah, I always used to come away with more bruises. I don't know that's possible, so, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. All right, boys. Well, is there any other practices or habits, routines you would recommend people adopt into their lives? On the topic of mental health, I'd definitely say uh, meditation, particularly first thing in the morning. It's something that I do probably three out of seven days a week. Really? Um, on, av- on average, but I would, you know, some days I do five, some days I do seven. But probably on average, I meditate first thing in the morning, three days a week. Uh, yeah, out of seven. And I think that it's very easy just to wake up and jump straight into work, jump on your phone, yeah. and it means it puts you in a very like reactive state of mind. So if you just sort of ease into the day and just have sort of 20 minutes, half an hour to yourself, it means that you can create your own emotions and sort of stay in control of the day. 
um, and build the momentum on your terms as opposed to reacting to everything that everyone's putting out into the uh, atmosphere. So, yeah, meditation, jump on it. Even if, you know, sitting down and taking 20 breaths and focusing on your breaths, that is meditation. You don't necessarily have to um, try a certain practice or get a certain app yeah. or listen to a certain thing on YouTube. Just, what, uh, what do you do? I, I, at the moment, I'm listening to someone on YouTube called The Mindful Movement. So yeah, check them out. It's a YouTube channel. There's a whole range of different meditations, ranging from five minutes to sort of thirty minutes. But yeah. some, I, I sort of go through waves of yeah. um, different practices. But at the moment, that's the one I'm doing. Yeah, amazing. I think you yeah. do have to change it up now and then because I went through a couple of years of doing transcendental meditation, and then mm. I just found it difficult to commit to twenty minutes every morning. Yeah. So now I'm doing uh, like cold water exposure, but I'm doing my Wim Hof breathing Wicked. in with like warm water, and then change it to cold water for thirty seconds to two minutes to three minutes. Mm-hmm. At the end, and I find that's easy to commit to because it's only like at tops like three minutes, and you're already in the shower. You're yeah, doing yeah. your morning routine in the shower anyway. So, mm. yeah, interesting. All right, we do the same three questions at the end of every episode. And we do these so that people can incorporate practices immediately into their lives and hopefully drive their performance forward. So the first one of these three is: Is there anything you guys have discovered or experienced recently that you're particularly excited about? And I'll let you both answer your own one. I read a book towards the start of the year that was really influential in a way that I thought called The Power of Habit and basically it's a book that looks at the neuroscience of how you form habits and how you how a lot of your daily behaviour is governed by habits mm. and what it did for me is it, it just opened up an area of choice that I didn't feel I previously had about things that I have been doing on and off or consistently over my life things like you know your morning coffee um, things like the three o'clock slice of cake. <laughs> yes, guys, I do have cake at three o'clock. A lot Carrot of cake at uh, oh, mate. House. Go to go to the office group. Go to their cafe. Eat their carrot cake, and then judge me, guys. I um, don't. I love cake so much, man. Oh, That's mate. my kryptonite. Um, so yeah, all these things I was doing without. I mean, I knew I was doing them. I just didn't quite have the, and you know, similar to Charlie, like fighting's about willpower like you know holding yourself to account for things is is really important so i just didn't didn't do that and um i've slipped back into those behaviors but i think the difference is that now i am fully aware of my control over them so the power of habit is a great read it 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 also talks about stuff to do with business so it also talks about how you create consumer habits we're we're just opposite from a starbucks coffee shop and i read a case study about how starbucks created um their training programs for their staff Mm -hmm a lot of it related to some of these principles. Um, so I've learned a lot about management and team stuff from it. But yeah, that was that was an influential book. Such a good one, mate. Charles Duhigg, isn't it? Yeah. He talks about the yeah. Q routine reward thing that's mm. like, mate, I can see it the same thing, mate. Get my flat white, get my get my cookie that I just had before here. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing, get my reward of the sugar spike. What about you, Charlie? Well, for me, it's how much time that I, subconsciously and consciously, and other people spend on social media. So. Yeah. I've had a week without any social media. I was just going to say, I wanted um, to ask you about that, cause you, but have you deleted it completely? I de- deactivated my account right. about two to three weeks ago. Yeah. Um, I've got a love-hate relationship with social media. It's so relevant for the space that we're in mm. uh, to promote our business, and we do get a lot of business through Instagram. But on a personal level, it's just it's pointless. It does nothing for me, really. Mm. Uh, it affects your subconscious, and it's a waste of time. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't agree Basically. more. Mate. I, did, I recently did a timeout myself. I read a book called Digital Minimalism by a guy yeah. called Cal Newport, who did another book called Deep Work. I don't know whether you've, you've heard of either of those, but he's like a professor over in the US. 
and in deep work he did a chapter called quit social media and then obviously off the back of that he's, he's spun off and done a book on the subject so yeah I did it as part of that it took two weeks off and my happiness went up the way that I was feeling present went up everything improved uh, since I've gone back on it it's, it's it's funny how quickly you go back into your habits and again we're talking about habit of just like logging in needlessly like as soon as something stops like or you're waiting for a train or I was getting to the point where even in conversations like if it would pause and the person still stood with me I'm getting it out, checking my phone, seeing if I've got mm. messages or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's massive, mate. Do you think you'll go back on it? Um, probably, yeah. When, I'm not too sure. but Well, I kind of need to because our social uh, posting schedule has been non-existent. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. You're looking at your, so, uh, just the head of Man of Digital <laughs> signing off from all digital comms. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> it will be in the near future. Amazing, uh, yeah, right, mate. But yeah, if there are any social media interns out there who yeah, are fancy taking that on, touch, so, yeah, so Charlie can stay on his <laughs> details. <laughs> All right, awesome. The second of these three is: Are there any habits or routines that you would suggest to drive people's performance forward? You've obviously already spoke about meditation. If you Chris, want to come up with one yourself, or Charlie, if you've got another, that would be great. And it's things that people can adopt as a daily practice. Mm. I mean, I've learned most of it off Charlie because I, when I retired from fighting, I, like, I relaxed all my, you know, I'd lived a very regimented, very military life, and I kind of told myself, you know what, you're retired, you can do what you want. So um, Charlie never really has let himself go in the way that I let myself go after I retired. So I've learned a lot of the, the kind of practice that, that he's he's talked about stuff I want to look into that I don't currently do at the moment stuff like journaling mm-hmm. I've done it for periods of time where you wake up and the first thing you do is do 20 minutes of like sweaty exercise I was listening to the, to Robin Sharma on his 2020 5am club method which is 20 minutes of sweaty exercise followed by 20 minutes of reflection which is you know often meditation followed by 20 minutes of growth which is which is reading they're all good ideas. The one thing that I always do every morning is I make my bed. Hmm. And I just was raised that way. And then I've had a number of people commenting on how, like, I will never leave my house without my bed made. Hmm. So I don't know what that's about. I know there's a, a Navy SEAL who talks yeah. about the importance of making your bed because it's the first win of the day. I don't know if I feel like I win when I make my bed, but I do fucking make my bed. So <laughs> uh, if you're leaving your bedroom a mess, guys... Um, yeah, give it a go. I don't know if it has any power to to uplift people, but for me, it's it's my way of stamping control on my day. Yeah, I don't leave my house. I've I've got certain checks and routines I go through every time I leave my house. Yeah. So I can't just pick up my coat and leave, which means I forget things less because yeah. of I don't have the best memory as it is. <laughs> One of the side effects of um, being a bit too aggressive in the boxing <laughs> ring, but you know it's important. I think to have that kind of level of structure. So whatever it is for you, do something every day that's constructive before you start your day yeah well mate it's amazing because like you're holding yourself accountable to that like it comes back to what you were saying Charlie earlier you briefly touched on like your identity obviously part of your identity Chris is that you don't leave the house without making your bed like that's something you stick to that's part of your values in the same way for you Charlie the reason why you haven't let yourself slip since you stopped fighting is because that's still a core part of your belief of who you are as a person so you're not going to let it happen yeah yeah <laughs> Cool. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. You're just more eloquent than us, bro. Like, it's just like, just like you took our three words and came up with something that sounded way better than what we said. So, fair play to us. Not true. Not true. All right. So the third one of these is, and 
I think we're just about going to survive this. It's the last question because it's so fucking hot in it's here. Quite, it's toasty. I'm sweating so If we much. crack that door open, it's just going to ruin your sound, isn't it? Big yeah. time. Yeah, we've got one question to go, so we're nearly there. So the last one of these is, if you imagine that there's two versions of yourself, and again, you can both answer this question individually. So there's two versions of yourself. Take yourself back to the hardest moment in your life when you were either up against it, you were either quitting your career and you were going through that transition into something different, whatever it might be. Imagine a time that was really difficult for you. What was the key differentiator between the version of yourself who managed to come through it and have all the success that you had to date and the version of yourself that wouldn't have done all those things? What's the key quality within yourself that allowed you to do it? Mm. I won't go into to detail about the sort of the situation I was in, but I think a word that I discovered maybe probably about six to eight months ago, which is an awesome word. It's called fortitude. And that's uh, courage through pain is what, is what it means. So, yeah, mental fortitude is definitely, was sort of a key sort of differentiator and driving force through that hard right. time. I love it, man. Yeah. It comes back to that Goldilocks thing, mate, the pain. If we don't put ourselves into that pain, then we're not growing. You need the right amount of pain, not too much that you get overwhelmed or stressed, not too little that, like what you were saying, Chris, when we're on cruise control, mm. the right amount of pain. I love it, mate, mental fortitude. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for me, I, I mean, to be honest with you, I think the current time of my life is, is one of the most exciting times, one of the most fulfilling times, and also at times, one of the most difficult times, because we are, what we are endeavouring to, to, to create is bigger than either of us, bigger than anyone in our team. Yeah. It takes a level of vision and ambition and work, which at times I wonder how long I can keep up and yeah you definitely have times where you just feel like you're falling short and you're not where you need to be and you don't have the skill that you need you don't have the knowledge or the experience that you need and you have to forge through and figure it out as you go or find it from somewhere but that's a very mixed picture I remember a very very difficult time for me was when I was fighting I fell out with my first coach and the fallout basically like the only way that he could uh, justify some of the things that were going on was to claim that I wouldn't amount to anything as a fighter and at that time in my life, I ended up retiring prematurely, four and zero, largely due to, to injuries. Um, but at that time, I hadn't actually had my pro debut yet. I'd given up my entire life to have my pro debut, like to step into a professional boxing ring and fight. And before that happened, I didn't even know if I could do it. So it wasn't a natural thing for me. I hadn't been like bred from day one. I've been boxing for about ten years, but not at like a super high, um, you know, amateur pedigree level. So when that coach, who at the time I'd invested a lot of importance in, decided to shoot me down and say, you're never going to get anywhere, mate. And then we stopped working together. I had to start from scratch. I had to find a new camp, a new trainer, someone else to believe in me without my fucking record, without my amateur pedigree, someone who's going to give me time and energy, who was decent, who I could trust. And only, and anyway, I managed to go about that in a, in a sort of fairly strategic way, but the only way that, that happened, I think, was um, sheer stubbornness. So at the time, I did not have belief in myself that I was destined for greatness as a pro boxer. I did not have the belief in myself that everything this guy is saying with his 20 years experience in the game is wrong. He's saying these things because he's trying to get to me. I didn't know that and I didn't believe that. All I knew was I am not done until I step into that ring and I don't know how it's going to happen, but I am not done yet. And 
that's just there's no there's no fancy word for that other than being stubborn. Mm. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I decided I was going to do something and I was going to fucking do it, even if I was shit and I got beat and I got knocked out. Because at the time, those were all possible outcomes in my mind. I didn't know what I was made of. You know, I didn't have that belief in myself. Yeah. And that's something that grew over my career. And it was one of the sad things about my career ending when it did, because I was just starting to hit my stride in my fourth fight. I was starting to the way I felt about myself and the way I believed in my ability to do something in boxing was only really starting to flourish at that time. But when it wasn't present, all I had was stubbornness. So that's my value. Man, I love it, man. Something more I want to ask you boys about the sporting side of things, but we'll have to get you back on again another time. No, no, thank you so much for having us, man. No, I've loved it. Much. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. We, we met, what, maybe like what, five months ago? Six months ago? Yeah, and when was Endeavour yeah. Awards? Five. Was it before Christmas? Christmas? Was it, it pre-Christmas? So. No way. Was it? Was it after Christmas? I think it was right. after Christmas. Was even, I'm sure it was. Time's it was flying. February. Yeah. Either way, I've been really looking forward to chatting with both of you, so I've really enjoyed it, boys. No, no, so, you. for people listening, this is obviously going out on this Wednesday as part of this Calm collab. So, the event with Calm is on the Thursday, and Chris, you're going to be on the panel. Charlie, possibly, as well. See if I can rope you in. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're going to be talking all about mental health, about how we can better cope with symptoms ourselves, how we can better recognise them in other people. Got some cool speakers there, and Isaac Chamberlain's going to be there as well. So if you listen to this the day it goes out, tomorrow night in Old Street, 6.30, you can get tickets on Eventbrite or on my Instagram, at Whittletakeflight. And you guys have got an event. So you said there's one on the 22nd, and then you've got your charity fight as well. Do you want to give the listeners some information on that? Yeah, sure. So our charity boxing, which is Fight for Your Manor, um, is going on the 6th of June. Venue TBC. Thursday night. We're going to be releasing the information on that shortly, cool. and tickets will be live shortly. If you want to stay in tune on that, Follow um, Manor's Instagram, which is at my Manor London, um, and then the other uh, confirmed event that will be going on at Lou Lemon Sweat Life Festival. Um, so you can get tickets um, to Lou Lemon Sweat Life on their website. Um, in you get more information in any Lululemon store, and Manor will be talking about that more in the coming weeks. So again, if you follow us, you'll get a lowdown on that. It's going to be that will be an amazing. I mean, it's going to be an amazing night of fights in a breathtaking venue, which I think is going to be talked about for many years to come. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the, the Sweat Life Festival is is, a, is an incredible it's an incredible event. There's five to seven thousand people that, that come and mm-hmm. they don't just wander through like they train. Like there's seven thousand training experiences that happen over the course of a weekend in a huge venue with all of the the best gyms in London. Yeah. They're going to be there. Amazing. I'm going to come to both of them as well. Solid for sure. Yeah. Chris, Charlie, thanks so much for listening. Cheers, Cheers Mark. Thank you, bro. So there it is, guys. I can't speak more highly of both Chris and Charlie. Such good guys. I'm genuinely buzzing to train more with them over at Manor. I can't wait to have them at the event as well. Once again, tickets are still available. You can get them on my website, flights.co.uk. I also can't wait to go to their events. They've got their own stuff going on, including the Lululemon Sweat Life Festival and the charity boxing fight, which I'll share more information on nearer the time. I'm definitely going to go to those. Really looking forward to it. Once again, this episode of Take Flight was in support of Calm. The Campaign Against Living Miserably charity are doing incredible things to help reduce the number of suicides in the UK. They have incredible services to do this. They have an online chat service and an anonymous phone line, which is open every single day between the hours of 5pm and midnight. 
you can use these yourself if you're struggling or you can direct people who might be suffering that you know friends family get them to speak up get them to get help through calm the services are amazing and it's incredible to be able to try and support what they're doing as much as we can during mental health awareness week so that's episode two we're doing this week we've got one more coming on sunday i can't wait to share that and in the meantime stay positive stay motivated and take flight